Hello and welcome to the December 2021 episode of The Crit. This is our holiday special. Yes, you can't tell because this is a um, audio and not a visual medium, but this special um, edition is actually being performed by the Muppet version of Ollie and myself. My cloth mouth is clapping away as I spell out words. I'm India Block. And I'm Ollie Stratford. And for this end of year episode, we've decided to to look back over the um, the highlights and the lowlights of the past year. It's been um it's been an exercise in revision, actually. There's uh, several months that were just empty blank spaces in my mind that have now been hastily refilled. We've set ourselves some categories to make this a little bit easier. So we've tried to think through certain features of the year that we can discuss. So what was the most notable architecture project? What was the most notable design project, for instance? Now, I should say, India, these aren't the best projects of the year, aren't they? Are they? I mean, obviously, our taste is impeccable, but we, in this case, are humbling ourselves. And we're not saying that this is the um, the ultimate view. This is just our personal take on the year. So, you know, if, if you're not included, don't feel snubbed. It's not exhaustive. It's not final. We don't have that authority. But we must get on with the show. So let's head to our first category. So our first category we're going to be looking at is notable architecture projects of 2021. Uh, Now, I don't know about you, India, but I found this one quite hard because, you know, there are just so many different types of architecture. How do you how do you compare a housing project to a museum project to urbanism and infrastructure? It, It was quite tricky, right? I think it's interesting that we've both picked projects here that are a little less grand in scale, but also have quite a strong theme of social design. Yeah, so what I went for is actually a project we covered back in Decennia 29, and this is the Tiny Home project by Lyra Architects in Los Angeles. What Tiny Homes are, there are about four sites spread around the city now. This is temporary housing for the unhoused in Los Angeles. Now, I don't know how well listeners know the situation in Los Angeles, but there's a huge problem with homelessness. So in 2020, the homeless count was 66,436 unhoused people in LA County. And that's pre-COVID. And COVID obviously has added to the stresses and strains on that system. So you would expect that number is now higher. Yes. And that number also includes people who are living in their vehicles. And if everyone remembers that um, award-winning film Nomadland that came out earlier this year, I think that really um, highlighted for a lot of people this situation of how many people, especially older people in America, have found themselves, I guess, really vulnerable. Everyone lives only a few paychecks away from this sort of situation. But that's that's completely true. And actually, Indira, I don't know if you know this, but that is backed up in the statistics. So in that Los Angeles homeless count I mentioned, uh, two thirds of those people polled were people reporting first time homelessness. So I think often when you discuss housing and homelessness and the unhoused, people sometimes have this stereotyped idea of who is unhoused. And like you say, it, it's not true. But the Tiny Home Project is a really interesting one. So it's an initiative as part of the LA Mayor's Office. And the idea is different districts of the city have recommend unused parcels of land and then they've built these small kind of villages of micro homes on those sites. So these are little buildings, they're sort of um, 
pre-constructed ones. They're manufactured by the Seattle-based company Pallet. And it's kind of the barest essential of a home. So these are intended to be temporary. You're only meant to live in these for kind of a maximum or three months. But they provide a bed, some storage space, wash facilities. It's It's an incredible program in a sense. It's a tragedy that the homelessness situation has been allowed to get to where it has in Los Angeles and any number of cities around the world and providing temporary housing isn't the long-term answer but clearly something has to be done in the short term and I, I think these these were a good suggestion. As you said it's it's not a long-term solution but a lot of studies um, have shown that it's most important to intervene with homelessness at these um, incredibly vulnerable early stages and that if you can help someone back off the street then they have a greater chance of kind of getting back into a housed um, situation. And also, um, Pallet, the company that makes these micro-homes, they have a policy of hiring formerly unhoused people to do the design work and to help with the manufacturer. So it's kind of a a whole life programme. They're not just buying these cabins off the rack. They've actually had design input from people who've lived in those situations and I think that really shows in the fact that these cabins are for example lockable if you don't have that security and if you um, are robbed then it's even harder to get back on your feet so it's those little details that I think show that a lot of thought and care has gone into the putting together of these projects. They do. And one thing I really liked about it is I think Lyra architects admit and acknowledge the limitations of this project. So I think they'd be the first to say these micro houses are really small. It's not an ideal situation that people are having to live in these. And the other thing is it raises issues around urbanism in general. So the project, the, the tiny house village we covered is the one on Chandler Boulevard. Now, that's a 3.487 million project, but a lot of the money in that actually went towards preparing the site for construction and also sorting out a sewer line extension to cover the site. So a lot of the expense was actually because that part of the city hadn't put forward a terribly great site for this and it just shows if they if you're more generous in the site you put forward it actually in the long run is probably cheaper it works out cheaper for the city because less needs to be done to it to be able to put one of these housing sites up and I think that's just quite rare in architecture to hear architects speak about limits in their project what they're putting forward they acknowledge isn't a perfect solution by any means but it is it's something. It's something and something needs to be done to address this issue. Now, for my top project, this technically they started completing last year and there's a few that are going to complete next year. But I think because it was uh, scheduled a time in with the Tokyo Olympics, this is the Tokyo Toilet Project. It's 17 public toilets that are being built in the Shibuya district of Tokyo. They have got some pretty big names on board, uh, some serious star attacks here, really. You've got Tadea Ando, who is kind of most known this year in particular, I suppose, for his Bourse de Commerce project in France. Um, you've got Su Fujimoto, Toyo Ito, uh, some serious names um, designing public toilets. 
Public toilets are a subject that are quite close to my heart. I truly believe that uh, in order to have an accessible society, you need to have these kinds of facilities and they are quite closely connected to the kind of political nature of public space. I mean, in the UK, public facilities for women weren't introduced until the kind of you know late 1800s. It was seen as... Um, improper for a woman to ever be spending enough time outside of the house to need a public convenience and they believe that only kind of ladies of the night would need that sort of thing and it was only when women started you know with the industrial revolution leaving the house to work in factories and they were like oh god we have to like build public conveniences for women people that need to sit down to urinate often struggle to find uh enough spaces to do so privately and safely and then people who have got small children with them who need to change them people who have certain health conditions who have Crohn's or IBS or have a colostomy bag um, you're making the city kind of uninhabitable for them if you are always tied to within a radius of your home those things being eroded I think make a city less Liverpool. So I think it's important to see a project that elevates the toilet to this beautiful piece of architecture, but each one has been thoughtfully designed uh, to, to be a part of the city and to explore part of this concept. I think this is the thing with public toilets. It's sort of a, a sign of sophisticated urbanism, isn't it? Because these aren't headline projects. They're not the flashy, glamorous things which typically get cut, um, column inches. But they are essential and they're a sign that you're thinking about people and you're thinking about their experience in the city. So it's, I think it's a really good nomination. Do you know, is, is the programme going to continue? Because I guess one thing which occurs to me is the risk of, oh, do they just become these sort of slight, beautifully designed follies, you know, a handful of these lovely, big architect named ones, whereas maybe what you need is a systematic programme of quieter, but just very well designed and very reproducible toilets. It's being funded by the Nippon Foundation, but they have um, partnered with the Shibuya city government and the local tourism association to commit financially, importantly, to maintaining these um, toilets. So they have a kind of, uh, they have these very nifty uniforms with kind of the Tokyo Toilet Project embroidered on them, kind of navy boiler suits. And they employ people who are regularly cleaning them and also surveying them to make sure that they are still working so there is that thing that no this is not like the Lyra Architects project where it's something that could be reproducible in any city but they are making sure that this will be a, you know this is not going to be a flash in the pan um they, they're going to make sure that they're not going to become kind of run down and grimy the minute the Olympic spotlight is off which I think that is important especially with public conveniences like this is you don't want them they will become kind of a social nuisance if they are left to decay but I'm interested seeing as you you hadn't really heard of them before did you have a favorite of the of the toilet designs are there any stuck that stuck out to you well, I had one which alarmed me the most. Uh, I think it was Sue Fujimoto's. You may have to correct me on that. It was um, it was a glass translucent toilet, 
Uh, and then when you go in and lock the door, the glass becomes opaque. So it's some it's some kind of magic glass. It's some kind of technically sophisticated glass. And they actually they made quite a good point because I think everyone's initial reaction was, what on earth do you think you're doing? But he pointed out, well, you know, there are safety concerns around toilets. Lots of people don't want to use them because they don't know what's inside. And, and I think that's a fair point. So this was an attempted solution. Um, but personally, I would be far too squeamish to use that. I don't think I'd have full faith in the opaque glass, but I, I did. I did admire him speaking about why why you would do that, and I thought raised some good points about safety and security. So, design project up next. This was also very hard to choose one. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> I complained about architecture being broad, and then I picked a category which was just design. I mean, madness. So how did you, um, how did you vote in the end? What kind of area of design did you look into? So I did cheat a little bit because I cribbed it from Disegno 29, from an interview that our glorious producer, Evie Hall, did with Mayan van Elvel, who is a Dutch designer who is doing a lot of really exciting work with solar and um, bringing solar technology into the home and making it beautiful as well as useful. So I finally chose the Sunner lamp, which is a solar-powered pendant lamp for the home, which she funded through a Kickstarter, which is quite like an exciting way I think of a a fairly established designer getting backing for a product um, and retaining authorship over it. Aesthetically it kind of looks like a Donald Judd piece of art, it's this long oblong that you hang in front of a window so I suppose disclaimer is you need a kind of a a nice big uh, window to hang it in from and it kind of takes in the sunlight during the day and then it at night it will kind of glow with these this lovely light and it has three settings so it can do dawn light sun sunset and then a kind of lovely daylight glow yeah i think mayan's a really interesting designer because like you said at the start she's very much come to specialize in um solar power and i think that's quite a contemporary way of working for a designer to really delve into a particular area and kind of make all of their projects around that so mayan's produced any number of solar powered objects And what's exciting is I think she's hit upon the fact that there's lots of interesting things going on in solar technology, but it's not necessarily that well connected up with other fields. So you have people in labs creating these impressive solar cells, but then they don't manifest necessarily in commercially available technology. So a lot of what she's doing is trying to make connections between people and trying to let that technology filter out a little bit more. And I guess that's part of what she's doing with Sunna, right? If you can put this technology in a commercially available object and in a domestic object, that's a great communication tool. Yeah, she's really bridging the gap between technology and design because when you think of solar panels, you still think of fields of them or, you know, if you have it in your life, you probably have it on the roof of your house um, or on a really small scale kind of calculators or those little bubble heads but yeah I do think there's this huge gap and when you hear about kind of solar for the home it's usually kind of news about like Tesla or Ikea bringing in battery packs because that's another problem that you kind of can't store the power without specialist technology which I think again this 
this lamp addresses but in in a way that anyone could have them in their home without having to kind of spend ages researching solar panels you don't really need to know anything about this lamp you just hang it up in front of a window and go about your day no absolutely and i mean she worked on other solar projects this year she created a solar roof for the dutch pavilion at expo she's also launched a solar biennale in the netherlands to again try and connect people and i think that's that's the exciting thing about her showing showing other designers that you don't necessarily need to just be endlessly producing different projects for different manufacturers. You can pati- you can pick a particular area and really specialise in it. So Ollie, what did you pick for your design project of the year? Well, I went techie as well, but a slightly different side of tech from my and then the solar power. So my nomination for this is the new website of former Phantasma, which I wrote about back in Decennio 30. Now, what's interesting about this website is that it's been designed to be a low carbon website. So it's designed to use as little energy as possible to try and make digital more sustainable. So if you go on Former Phantasma's website, it looks a bit like a website from the mid 90s or Wikipedia, for instance. It's very simple, a lot of just plain text, standard font, Arial and Times New Roman, because if you use a more specialist font, then your browser needs to download it. So it's a sort of way of trying to make a beautiful aesthetic website, and it is very beautiful, but using as few digital resources as possible. Yeah, I think this is just a, a classic form of Phantasma project. They always manage to take a concept that shouldn't be kind of stylish and sexy. Like if you say an eco-friendly website, it's not it's not conjuring images of high style and they somehow make it something really desirable. And they really set a trend. I mean, they're really ahead of this conversation that we're having now about just how much of our digital lives without our knowing is causing a lot of environmental damage. I mean, it wasn't until this project, as you mentioned, that fonts play such a a large part in energy consumption of a website. I I had no idea. Well, the interesting thing is what former Phantasma have done isn't particularly new. There are other websites which have done this and former Phantasma are the first to point that out. They they cite Low Tech magazine is a very famous example, which is the solar powered website. But what they've done very well, I think, is they're good communicators of this. So what former Phantasma did very well, and I should say they worked with another studio on this, Studio Blanco, was create a site which was very public facing and could begin getting these conversations into a broader audience. Basically, the situation is with a website, every feature you include is in a sense energy intensive because it's something to load and the data for that has to be stored somewhere else. So anything that happens online really is translating into what's going on at a data centre elsewhere. And those data centres are hugely energy hungry. So they use an awful lot of electricity, much of which comes from fossil fuels. So Although an individual website isn't using much energy, when you look at the overall mass and when you start proliferating with things like video, with very large images, with custom fonts, with music, suddenly that's a huge amount of energy being required to support that. 
Lastly, I mean, digital technologies are now reported to account for 4.2% of the world's primary energy consumption. That's enormous. That's more than the airline industry, for instance. In 2015, data centres consumed 416.2 terawatt hours of electricity. So that's more than the entire United Kingdom. So these are massive things. And there's lots of different strategies for dealing with that. Do you try and green the energy supply? Do you try and strip down online so it's not consuming so much? Or do you look at consumption in general? Does the internet enter you into conversations about this kind of always on society and maybe we need to think about consuming less. Design discussion around this exists. The problem is no one knows it's out there because it stayed so much within its own sphere. So if I could encourage people to do anything, it would be just try and find out a little bit more about it. So India, you mentioned earlier that you were a bit worried the Tokyo Toilet Project might not count because it technically started in 2020. Correct. Well, my product of the year for 2021 is technically something that was made in 2015. However, I'm sneaking it through because I think it's such an important product and it's gained a lot of attention this year because they're trying to roll it out on the NHS. So this is something that has already been present in other countries, but at least in the UK, the plan is for it to arrive this year. This is the Ballerine IUD, which if anyone doesn't know what an IUD is, it's a coil. So it's a device which is implanted in the uterus and it prevents someone falling pregnant. Yeah, I'm definitely going to let you have this one because it's one that I am personally pretty excited for. Having had uh, a interuterine device for six years, it's kind of become my favourite dinner party topic of conversation, explaining to people how incredibly uncomfortable getting one put in usually is. Um, I kind of likened the method of the traditional T-bar shaped one to a cocktail umbrella because you put it in deflated and then you pull the little strings and it pops out like a little cocktail umbrella that one would put in your drink except inside you. There's been a kind of growing call I think for um, medical practitioners to be a little bit more upfront about how uncomfortable these procedures are but they are also one of the most effective forms of contraception Um, you don't need to remember to take a pill every day you don't need to get yourself to a doctor to get a shot every few months you don't need to rely on a barrier method so they are like really important types of contraception but like most of the history of uh, medicine for Um, women and non-binary people there hasn't been much in terms of design um, shall we say progress since. Right so as you said typically these devices are designed as a t-shape and that's been the case since about the 70s no one has questioned that. The problem is that these devices normally most of the ones on market are actually wider than the average uterus which is 24 to 26 millimeters so i think that should give people a sense of how uncomfortable these things can be and they can get embedded and cause really serious damage and harm what's different about the ballerine is it's the first real redesign 
of the coil for decades. So the ballerine is a sphere. It's a little sphere with copper balls on. It looks like a model of the universe. It's incredibly charming. And it's small. That's one of its big advantages. So it comes in a 12 millimetre or 15 millimetre size. Um, it can sort of squeeze a little bit. So, you know, once it's in, it's not going to be uncomfortable in the same way that some of these other devices are. And that's a really simple change. It's a really simple, obvious design change, but isn't something that's been done beforehand. Now, I should also give some credit here. The person who's put Desenio onto this story is a young, really brilliant journalist called Helen Brown, who actually wrote about the history of IUDs for Desenio number 30. And her article is comprehensive. It covers so many different areas. But the ballerine is a really positive step forward in the design of these objects. And I'm very excited about it because I think when we talk about product design, we often think of furniture, we think of consumer electronics and things like this. And medical devices and things like this, which have a huge impact on people's lives, they sort of get forgotten. Yeah, I think this is one of those really interesting um, designs where yeah, they've approached it like a product and you want your consumer to be comfortable using it. You don't want it just to be imposed upon you. And then also this particular version uses copper, which um, is hormone free, which is a real benefit if you can tolerate copper. But it does also, um, it can make people's uh, menstrual cycles a little bit more intense and obviously cramping when you've got like as you said such a small organ cramping around something that um is really uncomfortable if you've got something that's sticking into the side of you whereas this shape it can kind of almost like expand and contract the copper balls are held on little wires aren't they so it can squeeze down into a smaller shape to accommodate that I just think it's a classic design story. So this was developed by the gynaecologist Ilan Baram and they basically just did research. They did scans on patients who were complaining of pain and bleeding and found in a lot of them, their coils were too large. The arms had embedded into the walls of the uterus. They're badly positioned. And that's then a case of looking and saying, well, maybe this T-shape isn't a particularly good option for the design. What other forms are there? So I went down the route of IUDs and medical devices, which is one avenue of product. What did you look at? Well, I suppose mine is medical adjacent. It's certainly not something that's been rolled out on the scale of the NHS or perhaps as worthy a project. But I think it's one that's important and also one I think that touches on um, a lot of issues. So this is the bee bloom mask. Are we talking a face mask here? Yes. So we're talking we're talking pandemic as we go into year three of the pandemic. Um, and it's by this Dutch brand called Marie B. Bloom. And essentially they are face masks. So they're not medical quality. They are face masks intended for everyday wear. And they are made from potato starch and rice paper that's been impregnated with wildflower seeds. So they are biodegradable and if you plant them, they will grow flowers. And they were developed to draw attention to the problems of plastic pollution that have unavoidably been um, growing at the start of the pandemic. I mean, I don't know about you, but uh, I think the kind of combination of the 
climate crisis and the kind of knowledge about how much plastic we're putting into the environment has coincided with the pandemic to quite a stressful kind of balancing act. Oh, totally. If you walk around near where I live, you see disposable masks everywhere on the floor. It's immensely depressing and you can understand, but environmentally, it's not what we need. Yeah, there was just this increased amount of plastic. And then now we know but masks really are the key to breaking the transmission chain. Um, and also, you know, they are unavoidable plastics that needed to be used. You know, we should be letting people who are working in medical environments be wearing the serious masks or biodegradable face masks. It's an important step that everyone can take. And they're really sweet. The ear loops are made out of sheep's wool. It's kind of been spun together and they, they've got these little kind of biodegradable toggles shaped like a flower. It's interesting in terms of technological advance as well, because a lot of um, impregnated paper, uh, if you've seen it, it tends to be quite stiff, like cardboard. Um, so they did actually do a lot of testing to you kind know, of use rice paper and this potato starch and water method. So there is a flexible um, paper. It's not just kind of a flat piece of cardboard. It can kind of fold around your face. And I think it also to me, speaks to the the social side of mask wearing, which unfortunately in Europe and the US has become this political flashpoint. Very charged, yeah. Any number of fury on Twitter, for instance, whenever mask wearing restrictions are slightly increased, people sort of tweeting, hashtag enough is enough. It's a really nice product that isn't kind of sanctimonious about it, but it is a way of making your mask have uh, a less intensive impact. And they're quite local as well, because obviously we have to have rules around the, the transport of kind of plants. You don't want to be bringing in invasive species. They're, um, they're planning to make different versions for different countries to make sure that you have the correct mix of wildflower seeds. I think it's a good choice if you're talking about a notable product of the year, something which encapsulates the pandemic and the environment and sustainability. Those are, those have been the two dominant stories, really. So to have something which captures that, that's pretty zeitgeisty. Salut one and all! I'm delighted to say that this episode of The Crit is brought to you in partnership with Maison et Objet, Paris's premier trade fair for design and interior architecture. The holidays may be just around the corner, but it's never too early to start thinking beyond the fairy lights and getting excited about what the new year may bring. Maison et Objet will be returning to Paris in 2022, between the 20th and 24th of January. Discounted early bird tickets are available now until the 2nd of January. And what better way to start the new year than a visit to Paris in beautiful, frosty midwinter? You can order your tickets at www.maison-objet.com, where you can also find all the health measures to ensure that the fair is kept COVID compliant. The trade show is committed to keeping its visitors and exhibitors safe at all times, enforcing all necessary sanitary measures and communicating with visitors on all its channels to ensure a smooth process for all. So remember, visit maison-objet.com to book now. And for those whose French is not as formidable as mine, that's M-A-I-S-O-N hyphen O-B-J-E-T. 
We're looking forward to seeing you at the show. So our next category is looking at the design trend of the year. So which trend has um, dominated news stories? And I've picked for this hybrid working, this idea that in the future, all creative businesses will be split between homework and office work. I mean, this has definitely been a a trend in that everyone has been experiencing some level of it. Do you have a take on it? Well, I don't mind it. I actually quite enjoy working at home, but there are aspects of the office which I miss, obviously, the camaraderie and all of that side. Um, I think that's been discussed to death. What's been interesting this year is seeing design brands and particularly brands that work in the office context start producing furniture and products specifically designed to support this. So specifically creating um, office pieces for the home, perhaps to enable that while still insisting upon the importance of a central office. So Vitra is a really good example of this. I mean, they've, they have any number of um, products that are suitable for home because obviously they have that kind of home furnishing side as well. But then they've launched this new initiative called the Club Office, so still insisting that there's a place for that central office. I don't know how you feel about it, India, but I, I'm kind of mixed on this idea of hybrid working. Because while I think in principle it's a very good idea, I don't think it's as simple as just making sure everyone has swishy offices at home. So much depends on the individual companies and whether they are willing to change their processes to actually support people working from home and to make it a practical solution. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned Vitra because I was lucky enough to get to visit their campus in Violin Rhine earlier this year and they've just done up their office with hybrid working in mind and Nora the CEO was saying that the advice that she gives her clients and that they have tried to implement themselves is that if they want to encourage people back into the office you know they should add some new things to make people feel welcome and then they should also ensure that there is really good coffee which I think are two things that are important and that they have definitely <laughs> taken to heart. And I, I mean, obviously, it's feature. It was going to be gorgeous. But walking around the office, I was like, oh, I, I would commute for this. This is a really nice office. I think there is also, uh, you know, I'm not going to recognise it as a panacea because I do see a lot of companies, especially um, kind of older, more traditional companies or companies that have spent a lot on office space to be to be frank um insisting that people come back um kind of set days of the week and you know that that's just motivated one by kind of financial um motivations you know they've paid rent on these offices they want people in the offices and also this kind of uh, I'm I'm not quite sure we've got past the traditional you're not working if your manager can't you know, see the whites of your eyes. Absolutely. And I think this is kind of what's interesting, because all of these design companies are trying to create based around this idea of hybrid working. And that's great. Like design can help with it. Having the right environments is really supportive. But it still doesn't work if, say, you have the most amazing home office, you have the most amazing central office, but your boss is a tyrant and is constantly checking in on you when you're at home, for instance, or if at home you're suddenly having to pay a huge amount on utilities, like getting super fast internet so you can do your job. So it's kind of all that 
unglamorous backend stuff, which actually goes a long way to working out whether this system is viable. And that's where I think design can't massively get involved. Now, um, when we compared notes on uh, what we were going to pick for these trends, I was both horrified and envious that you had managed to forget this for 2021, (laughs) Ollie. I'm a bit embarrassed I forgot this trend. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, with a heavy heart, it, I have. I feel I have to pick for my um, design trend of 2021, NFTs. Non-fungible tokens. Yes, and I think this is not just it was a trend kind of across the... Uh, across the board news-wise, but I think it's it's really taken off in design in a way that I, I haven't really seen it take off in other industries. An NFT is a... In very, very basic terms, no crypto bros, yell at me, please. Um, It is a piece of digital art that one can buy through the blockchain, which um, kind of allows you to track your ultimate ownership of it and to uh, trade it again through the blockchain in a way that will allow the original creator to retain a cut of it. So it's this new kind of decentralised mode of trading. It's a gold rush. It's the tulip fever. It's a lot of people rushing in and um, a lot of creators making quite sizable amounts of money by putting their work onto crypto auction sites such as Nifty Gateway um, to allow people to buy and sell using cryptocurrencies. Yeah, and the reason this is controversial is that blockchain technology and cryptocurrencies, for instance, another example of that, they use a huge amount of electricity to be produced to mine them. So at the moment, around 0.3% of global electricity is used for mining Bitcoin alone and 0.5% for all cryptocurrencies. So that's the challenge with blockchain and with NFTs, that you're using a huge amount of energy to produce a non-fungible version of something which by its nature is endlessly reproducible. I suppose the interesting conundrum I think it's raised for design is putting value on a digital product and I think a lot of designers have these skills to produce incredible renders, incredible 3D products but they have been kind of sidelined in favour of the real tangible object that you can purchase and own and place in your home or in a museum. But the designers who work in the more kind of digital oeuvre, this is kind of their time to shine. And it's actually been putting some of the value back on a skill set that perhaps hasn't been taken as seriously in the past. Yeah, I think that's definitely a positive slant on it. And I suppose it does reward and acknowledge those digital forms of practice. I just think it shows that even in the digital realm, you need to be really careful about what you're doing. To go back a little bit to that form of phantasma uh, project, so much of what NFTs show is that digital isn't kind of a free lunch. It has physical impact on the world in terms of its energy usage. So just sticking something online and saying, oh, well, it's better because I haven't materialised this, I haven't produced it. Actually, it still has a really big impact. And I think that's the problem that NFTs kind of encourage this view of digital as weightless and this idea that, yeah, you can just put it out and it's great. So I've had any number of 
designer projects come through as press releases where they say, oh, we're doing this huge, exciting new NFT edition. Like, do you want to see the work? And I'm quite excited by seeing that work. Like you, I'm interested in projects which only manifest digitally. Why not? But at the same time, when you say back to them, oh, so so what what are you sort of doing about the environmental cost of that? How do you justify that? The answers I've had so far have been quite unsatisfying. You, you get the impression a lot of people are doing this without necessarily thinking through or realising what some of the impact might be. Yeah, and I think um, there's a really interesting piece in Disegno 29 written by Johanna Egerman-Ross about this very conundrum. And Johanna looked at it through the lens of Anders Reisinger's NFT auction, where he made almost half a million pounds from this sell-out auction of a collection of furniture that, you know, you own and you can use them in a digital landscape. Interestingly, one of the chairs, the Hortensia, was so popular, and if you've seen it, I'm sure you'll recognise it. It's this kind of beautiful, puffy armchair that looks like it's made out of little cloud petals. Yeah, like a chair formed entirely from cherry blossom. And then Moy actually recreated this from digital so they made something that was only ever intended to exist in the digital realm in the physical realm and they made it out of um, fabric pieces that would kind of flutter um, to try and recreate this in real life and I just have something incredibly interesting about that that it wasn't just a render that was Uh, being used to help visualise and, you know, perhaps find an audience for a physical product. It was a piece that was only ever intended to exist virtually that then was so popular it was made physical. I think it's tricky, isn't it? Because I know um, Andres, he's sort of said this is a new way in which designers can make money. And let's face it, designers need ways to make money. It's quite a hard business to, to pick your way through. And there is this issue of if you create digital works by their nature, they are reproducible, they are copyable, people are sharing them all over the internet, and suddenly you've put a lot of work into creating something, but you're kind of getting nothing from it. So sometimes I see NFTs as a little bit an effort to impose a kind of old world physical art market style economic model onto the digital to say, well, we'll make certain tokens of this artwork non-fungible and then you can trade those as you would a sculpture or canvases. But while I have sympathy with the desire to make money and, and to try and find economic models online, I just think the environmental cost of that is not proportionate. That's clearly not an answer. So your discussion of NFTs actually segues us quite nicely into our next category, or at least my pick for our next category, which is design villain of the year, boo, hiss, etc. (laughs) We didn't want this category to be too spiteful and and pick on individuals necessarily. So what I've picked for my design villain of the year is what I'm going to call the metaverse, uh, which the metaverse, obviously, we know Facebook is now big in the metaverse. But what I'm interested here is the increasing tensions between digital platforms and services and reality, and particularly the ways in which laws intersect with those. So what I have in mind here is, for instance, social media and the regulation surrounding it. So it's well known, for instance, that social media is protected um, 
against a lot of lawsuits that a traditional publisher would face by the fact that it bills itself as a platform. So Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act in the United States guarantees that, oh, okay, Facebook and Twitter, they're not publishers, so they don't need to worry about what other people are putting out through them. They're platforms. But that's very uncomfortable because I think throughout this year we've seen the huge amount of hate and the huge amount of misinformation that goes out through these platforms. And and like, I've done it there. I've called them platforms. What exactly is a platform? The law has a really hard time accommodating that. Yeah, and I think this touches on a lot of the other things that we've spoken about. For example, if we were all having to go into the metaverse, surely that's going to be an incredibly hungry digital space. So a lot of these digital services we're seeing now, they're very reminiscent of things we already have. So Twitter is very much like a publisher, except it's not quite a publisher. It wants to bill itself as something different. Uber and Lyft are very much like cab services, except they want to bill themselves as something different. And you have this ongoing situation in California where they're refusing to recognise their drivers as full-time employees. So you have this kind of grey area that what's appearing online and in these digital services They're familiar because that's the appeal. You're getting services, you know what they are. But to make it possible to mean you can have incredibly cheap taxis, to mean you can say whatever the heck you want on Twitter or so on, they have to slightly reposition themselves. So suddenly they're a platform, they're a ride-hailing app. And then the laws as they stand, which were based around these original physical services, they can't quite accommodate them. They don't have the teeth to actually deal with these things. Yeah, and we can't um, we can't fall again for the premise that we're going to be sold that these spaces will be egalitarian or utopian. They are going to carry the exact same class divisions and wealth divisions that the the real verse carries. There's going to be a lot of people rushing to find businesses to uh, profit off this this new industry, essentially, and it's it's going to be. Um, it's going to be risky because at the moment we don't have legislation that can keep up really with the with the pace. Yeah, that's the issue. If you don't have legislation that can actually keep up and deal with these, the power shifts elsewhere. So I'd forgotten, for instance, Parler. Do you remember Parler and the role that played in organising the capital riots? That's 2021. And look, I was very happy when Amazon and the other tech giants cut off Parler's hosting. It's an incredibly pernicious site, which did an awful lot of damage. At the same time, I think you can be happy that Parler was taken down, but still find it worrying that the power to actually oversee these online domains seems to lie with these huge corporations, with Amazon and Facebook. It's not laying with legislators. And that's frightening in its own right, I think, that because we can't quite define what these things are and therefore it's not encoded in law, you have a situation where suddenly these corporations can take an enormous amount of control. So my villain of 2021 isn't something as um, kind of terrifying overlordish as the metaverse, but it is something that I think symbolises a more pernicious problem in the world. So my villain is whatever cursed person designed the Manchester bin room and then put it on the internet for rent for £600 a month. So what is the Manchester bin room? I haven't seen the Manchester bin room. 
the Manchester Bin Room was a uh, build as a live work studio flat um, in a modern block of apartments in Manchester that was built build as a place that you could um, you'd have to legally call an office but you could also sleep there then when you look at the pictures you realize that it is in fact a room where the waste disposal bins would normally sit in a building so windowless room with a rubberized floor the worst thing was is that they hadn't just rented out this empty bin room someone had taken the time to build this kind of quite trendy little micro home furniture unit out of osb so it had this um unit that had like a you know wardrobe cupboard sort of situation And there was something so incongruent about it because I think plywood and OSB and these kind of inexpensive building materials have become quite trendy in architecture and design over recent years, which I, you know, appreciate as an aesthetic. But then it really brought me up short seeing it in this kind of context. Well, I think this is it, isn't it? This is something which a lot of people in design have been saying for so long. There's this pernicious myth within the discipline that design is about making things better and design is problem solving and helping these lovely plywood rooms they can be very attractive they can be very charming a lovely interior equally someone can use that aesthetic to try and dolly up a room which really isn't fit for human habitation I mean there's that great MoMA project from a quite a few years back led by Paolo Antonelli and Jema Hunt uh, design and violence which explicitly looked into this and sort of blew apart that myth that design is here to help and design is benevolent and they pointed out Well, yes, sometimes, but design is also here to do all sorts of things. It's here to oppress, it's here to maim, it's here to be cruel, and it it really depends on in whose hands it is. And this is a great example of that, I think. Our final category for the review of 2021 is Design Hero of the Year. Someone whose work perhaps really leapt out or struck a chord or we just felt made a very positive contribution to the discipline. So my choice for this was someone very near and dear to my heart because their work is rooted in writing. And as a writer, I'm always keen to know what other people are doing in that field. So this is Alison Killing, who is the first architect to ever win a Pulitzer Prize for reporting. In the past, some architectural writers have won prizes in the criticism category, but Alison is the first to be honoured for an investigation. And what Alison did in conjunction with a couple of other writers was an investigative series for BuzzFeed called Built to Last. And that combined architectural analysis of satellite imagery with traditional reporting. And it found a network of camps being built by the Chinese government as part of its mass internment of Uyghur Muslims and other minority groups in the province of Xinjiang. So India, are you familiar with Alison and her work? I am, and I agree, it's really exciting to see this. I think the fact that architects and designers have this wealth of skills that can be applied in this forensic investigative manner um, to reveal human rights abuses. It's, um, these are places of detainment and torture that have been built and designed yes but they can also be tracked and um, mapped almost by reverse engineering these skills it's um it's exciting to see those kind of technologies used used for good i mean the way in which she discovered these camps is fascinating so 
just as a quick overview, she realised that the camps would probably be being censored on uh, Baidu, which is China's version of Google Street View. So she looked through and found, well, which areas are being um, sort of blurred out on the map? And then she applied a couple of more criteria, like knowing, well, these camps are probably going to be based around cities and towns because they need infrastructure. And then they just went through Baidu, looking at where these possible sites could be and then comparing with satellite imagery, looking at what was there and identifying whether they were internment camps. So it's an amazing undertaking and classic reporting, but classic reporting that wouldn't be possible without Alison's expertise in architecture. Yeah, there's a really fascinating subculture almost of... um people all around the world who get together to pour over satellite imagery to track these kinds of things. It's one of those really interesting ways where surveillance technology is being turned back around and puts kind of power back in the hands of the people almost. Yeah, absolutely. And there are other examples of architects working this. I think the classic example is forensic architecture over at Goldsmiths, who've launched investigations into humanitarian issues and war crimes. Uh, Dima Sruji, a Palestinian architect who's done interesting work with satellite imagery to look at the situation in Israel and Palestine. She's actually featured in an issue we put out this year, Decennia Number 30. So Alison isn't alone in doing this, but I think it's an incredibly impressive investigation that she put together. And it it really does show that architecture and design, they can do good. It's not all about production and consumption. So for my hero for 2021 was kind of a shock last minute entry, but I feel it would be remiss not to uh, give this slot to... Virgil Abloh, who sadly passed away this year at the age of just 41 from a cancer diagnosis that he had kept hidden and kept working through. Yeah, it was it was shocking when the news came through. I don't think anyone anyone had any inkling, really, and absolutely tragic. What a what a loss to fashion and to see someone so young die is is always crushing. But I mean, he he was a real dynamo in that industry. Yeah, he'd not even come fully into his power, I don't think you'd say. And yes, he was best known as a fashion designer, a a streetwear designer, but I think he was so much more in a way. He was a trained architect who had, uh, yes, broken into the world of fashion, um, but he was also a an artist, a musician, um, who and who was very concerned with design. I mean, he produced a range for IKEA, um, and what is that if not, you know, design for the home for the masses? At the other end, he did work for Vitra as well, so very high end design in addition. And I mean, his his work wasn't perhaps something everyone would love. I guess there's that sort of that popular element but it's almost that sort of thing where something becomes such a signature you know his putting things in quotes you would almost forget that he was the one who started it and I think he had a very conceptual uh, approach to things and he was 
for a designer, also very open to other people imitating him. For example, he was very unprecious and in fact would welcome people bootlegging or counterfeiting his designs because he felt that that was, you know, the highest form of flattery. He wasn't one of these precious designers that would be slapping down people with a lawsuit. Well, he had his famous 3% rule, didn't he? That if you change something 3%, then that's enough and you can put it out again. He's an interesting one because he's his work... I don't know whether he's a designer's designer in a sense because, like you say, he wasn't this sort of whiz kid technician who could do astonishing things with the construction of garments nor was he someone who'd studied product design for years and years and years and was just a sort of consummate artisan he was much more on that ideas side and I think he was an exciting and welcome figure in the industry because not everyone has to be this technical marvel. What he did, I think, was bring into fashion an industry which can be quite staid sometimes, some new ideas and some new influences from elsewhere, from streetwear, from internet culture, and really freshened it up. And I think that's the problem, because fashion's a huge industry but can often feel quite homogenous. (laughs) And what was nice about Virgil Abloh, I suppose, whether you like his work or not, it was something different. It was trying to do something else. And whether it always succeeded or not was, I suppose, a little bit besides the point. It It was pleasing to have someone try out some different ideas to try out this sampling and have a very different perspective on what a fashion designer could be. Yeah, and for someone who was kind of refused entry to fashion shows in kind of basically racial discrimination to to become the first black head of a fashion house, to be the director of menswear for Louis Vuitton, to set up your own successful fashion brand and be based in Milan, the kind of um, another European capital of fashion. Um, it is a an industry that claims to embrace diversity, but very often the people calling the shots at the top are old white men. And he was someone who, yeah, was kind of a challenger to that, but also prepared to work within the mainstream and was always very conscious that his role at Louis Vuitton was setting a trail, was blazing a trail, and he really wanted to to create more jobs for young black designers who would have been kind of shut out of the more traditional route. I mean, to get into any design route is um, tricky, unless you have kind of money and connections, um, but he wanted to find people that didn't necessarily have this elitist art school training and I think that's why it's so tragic that he's died so young and I really hope that his legacy is something you know more than uh, his reputation or more than the designs that he created suddenly boosting in value I I hope that there is a, a real lasting change in the industry Yeah, I thought one of the things I found most touching, actually, following his death was the number of people on Twitter and other social media, young black creatives saying that he had been incredibly supportive of them when they'd met him, for instance. I saw someone say that he'd interviewed him and Virgil Abloh had said that they had to stay in touch. And he actually did. And for someone in his position who was incredibly busy... That was very lovely to hear. I think he was someone who was very aware that he was a role model and was a trailblazer and who took that responsibility seriously. 
like you say, it, it's just a tragedy that he's he's passed so early because you, we need more people like that in in fashion in all industries. And he'd just been promoted to a new position in LVMH in July, where he was going to work across brands. And looking back, you think, well, what a shame. What think about how much good he would have been able to do in that position. Like you say, I think we just have to hope the industry to honour him and to continue his memory takes that aspect of his work seriously. Well, this brings to a close the Crits 2021 programming. We will be back in the new year with a more regular episode, but we thought it would be fun to just end things up with a little bit of nostalgia. I think everyone likes nostalgia at this time of year. In the interim, if you'd like to stay in touch, you can reach us on thecrit at decenniojournal.com. To all our listeners around the world, we wish you a happy and healthy holiday season. See you in 2022. The Crit is presented by me, India Block and Ollie Stratford and has been produced and edited by Evie Hall. Our theme music is composed by Yuri Suzuki with Team Suzuki at Pentagram. 